Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161DG202, Good and Evil, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 314, May the 2nd, 1994. This evening, Douglas Murray, Otto Scott, and Mark Rushduni and I will be discussing good and evil. The subject is a very urgently important one because the line between good and evil is being blurred in our day. And that which is good is too often called bad, and that which is evil is being exalted. An obvious example of that <clears throat> is abortion, another is homosexuality, and another now euthanasia. All these things which have for generations been regarded as eagle, e evil are now being called good. I'd like to read a poem that tells us a little bit about the temper of our time. It's by a man on our mailing list, John Thomas Harley, H-A-R-L-L-E-E, -E, but not for love. Uh, Mr. Harley has been a, an, a teacher from grade school on up through college and is an accountant now. And this brief poem of about seven lines, I think, is telling me. He writes, We are weary of perfection, craving novelty and error. We cannot endure reflection. We are weary of perfection, fearing truth and introspection, hating beauty to love terror. We are weary of perfection, craving novelty and error. I think that sums it up very well. There is a love of evil in our time, and we have a problem uh, with the good because people are alien to it. They have no respect for it. They want the freedom to do what they want, and they don't believe in consequences, basically. So the idea of the good is something that in everyday living is no longer a focus of personal attention and lives. It's a political thing with politicians ready to call everything that they do, however evil, good. So we not only have a confusion, but we have basically a lack of knowledge. The idea of the good is alien to our time because who's interested in learning about it or teaching it? How often is the doctrine of the good promoted in education or from the pulpit? We are 
collapsing as a culture because we have no idea of the good. Throughout the Middle Ages and in the Reformation, uh, one of the basic concepts in Christendom was the sonum bonum, the highest good. So that everyone was concerned with what is the highest good, the great good, that should govern every area of life. So that the concept of good was a very dominant one on the personal level as well as on the social level. The whole point of the confessional system was to keep people in line with the good. You had to go to confession, confess all your sins and your waywardness, your departure from the good. It was a standard personally, politically, religiously, in every sphere of life and thought. But the idea of the uh, consummate, the highest good, no longer figures in our society except on a political level of a world order which is going to embody goodness. And it is a totally humanistic concept and it varies from one group to another. Well, with that general introduction, Douglas, would you like to carry on? Well, in my lifetime, the courts have distorted this principle uh, and they've used this phrase the, gr the greater good principle in adjudicating uh, legal disputes and often uh, where they want to create a benefit for the greatest number of people the benefit is not necessarily good the result can be evil uh, just as well as good uh, the uh, destruction of private property rights, for instance, when the government feels that it has an overriding uh, purpose, uh, such as uh, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, when they uh, put people in jail for filling in a festering swamp or some other uh, thing, they feel that the greater good principle is served by, uh, by doing that. And uh, so they've, they've distorted uh, this principle. Well, that <clears throat> they're imitating the Nazis. The Nazis' Green Party was the <clears throat> original environmentalists and uh, nature lovers, you might say. And the essence of the Nazi theory, the socialist theory, national socialism, the essence of the socialist theory is the greater good. The uh, argument is that everyone owes their life to the great, to the majority, to to what is best for the greatest number, and that's assuming that the greatest number is good. It doesn't. It's not necessarily true. The the Catholics in their in the Middle Ages, when all our forebears were Catholic defined the good. They had four cardinal principles of virtue, prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. 
And then they had the three theological virtues, which were faith, hope, and charity. So they had seven cardinal virtues, all told. Now, temperance has been, was mistreated by the prohibitionists to mean to be a teetotaler when it, it never did. Jesus drank wine. It meant temperance meant temperance and prudence. Similarly, fortitude, justice. And then they had the seven cardinal sins, which was headed by pride. Pride was the number one. And uh, I think Jesus used that in one of his parables about the publican. Uh, who wasn't he on the roof? The Pharisee, the Pharisee and the publican. So I, you know, I thank God I'm not as other men. And that arrested the attention of God. Who knows what other men and he were all about? But in terms of goodness, is a is a word in the United States which makes people shudder, because it's been appropriated through the decades by the hypocrites. Mm-hmm. Well, in the last hour when we were discussing Satanism. We all made reference to some of the films, Stephen King's novels and other writers and their novels. I think one of the uh, pioneers in the uh, tales of horror was Lovecraft. Yes, he was. Uh, Very uh, popular in his day, Mm -hmm. but because he had some Nazi ideas, he's just been forgotten, although... I didn't know that. Yes. I wondered, yeah. Uh, Which is not surprising, but at any rate, we have an intense fascination with horror stories, stories about the occult and Satanism, which is interesting, because if you go back to the Middle Ages and to the Reformation... What you have are saints' tales and stories of martyrs. Mm-hmm. A great many. One of the most popular books of all time was Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is still in print after all these years, coming from the time of uh, Elizabeth, I believe. Yes, it's a whole series of volumes. Yes. And the abridged volumes uh, are still available. Mm-hmm. Always have been. And there are true stories. True stories, yes. And even though there is contempt uh, expressed by scholars for the saints' tales of the Middle Ages, and you can still get uh, Butler's History of the Saints, uh, which is very popular and sells heavily in some circles. Uh, None of these equal the concern for the horror story. Well, the horror story was pretty rare uh, until fairly recently. And now, of course, there's a whole flood. Yes. But, 
the stories that thrilled me as a boy were heroic. Mm -hmm. uh, people who, who won against great odds. Mm -hmm. Or, for that matter, didn't always have to win against great odds. If they simply held firm. The saints' tales, even of the desert monks, a book which was uh, very popular for centuries and at least within the past decade was in print again. Um, these are ridiculed by scholars as a lot of mythology. And yet the tales of the desert monks is largely an account of what they did and the austere lives they lived. Uh, their theology was not always too good, but there was also sometimes a beautiful and a hard common sense to those saints' tales. I like the one of the desert monk who on one occasion uh, when a very beautiful woman went out into the desert to see these desert monks and consult them, as many people did. They all hid their faces so they wouldn't see her and be tempted by evil as they saw it. And this one elderly desert monk ran out and looked at her and looked at her and said, she's beautiful, very beautiful. And when he was rebuked by some of the other monks, he said, but God made her beauty. We should rejoice in it. There was a lot of uh, good sense in some of those saints' tales, as well as some things that uh, are a bit absurd. But what has happened is that we have replaced the saints' tales with the most evil kind of literature. We have replacing them a love of horror. You have not only the Stephen King type of thing, the Lovecraft type of thing, you also have uh, true crime stories, endless details about the gory murders committed. And the hunger for this is incredible. You have many a tabloid that makes a sale with uh, promoting horror. Well, they don't even bother writing about it. They just show it on television. I mean, they're, you're, you're taken along for the ride in a in a patrol car, and you're shown the body there, you're shown the blood, the gore, uh, the, uh, the broken lives, the, the uh, destroyed hopes. Uh, it's out there. Uh, there's, uh, there's not much point in, in writing about it anymore. They've taken uh, whatever glamour there was in writing about it away. Well, and it's night after night, and it's incessant, and it never stops. It's on multiple channels. But it's false, even when it's factual. What we want to do, and John and I, John Upton and I have talked about this more than once, is to have the funding to put out a series of half-hour programs on the remarkable men who are out there doing amazing things. One 
Such man, of course, is Josue Lopez Luna, whose work in Juarez we visited, Otto, as you recall. Yes. There are a great many men like that who are doing amazing things. Nobody is telling their story. Josue has had some attention, but there are others who are never heard about. <coughs> and uh, well, we're hoping somebody out there might have the money to finance such a work. A book, a novel that I've referred to fairly often before on these <coughs> tapes was Fortitude by Uvalpo, which I read when I was about 18 or so, maybe 19, I'm not positive now. And it changed my behavior because it convinced me by one of his characters, one of the lessons that his hero learned was that cruelty is weakness and not strength. And thereafter, I put a curb on my temper until it today is second nature for me not to get too angry. I can get irritated, but I cannot afford to get angry. Now, I got a letter from Hans Senholz the other day about an essay that I did on the movies in which he recalled 1930 movies when he was a boy in Germany and yes. the way the, the cowboy movies uh, set a pattern for them which he's never forgotten. And if you remember in 1930, well, you don't, but in 1930, the cowboy movies, the good guy always won. Yes, and he was a good guy. And, but he didn't. they didn't win easily. And the classic is that the hero loses and comes back to win. And in the beginning, the villain always had all the odds. He had more men, he had more money, he had more land, he had everything. He looked as though he was invincible. And unless you get this kind of hope, you cannot really function because you're just a slave if you think that the world, all everything that's bad is always going to win. It's not true. I remember in World War II, and I brought this up before, I only saw two men show fear out of all the men and all the critical situations involved. One actually, uh, it was a mental thing, he was a radio operator, and the other was a fellow who gave way to a momentary weakness. But uh, the average person is brave, physically brave. Morally not so brave, but physically very brave. This is not taught. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, one of the things that we have seen is that... Uh, The whole of the old cowboy movie, which was very resented because it was so successful. Uh, during the 30s, uh, cowboy films made on uh, low budgets were bringing in a great deal of money because their people could still get a clear-cut 
distinction between good and evil. And when uh, John Wayne's stagecoach blurred the line, it instantly became a classic and was acceptable by the Academy. What we've seen recently is that one such cowboy hero who played a variety of roles, but basically in the cowboy tradition, even though he might be a police officer a good deal of the time, was Clint Eastwood. And he was finally acceptable, as you pointed out, Otto, when he completely blurred the line and destroyed the line between good and evil, which is what our age wants. He became an anti-hero. Yes. Well, I'm not so sure that our age wants it. It's what our leadership is giving them. Yes, you're right there. And uh, people, uh, I go to the movies now because I'm writing about them. And I haven't been to one of these uh, cinemas over here in Sonora yet that had more than 12 people watching. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they make a living. It's almost all empty. Well, uh, you mentioned anti-hero. It's interesting that uh, not long after the war, uh, Latin American poet won, won international prizes for a book of poetry that he called Anti-Poems. Mm. And since then, poems have no longer become uh, sensible. They give impressions. They do not give you a sensible perspective on anything. Well, we're talking about good and evil. Now, I saw a recent column, or an article, I guess, on Russia, in which it said the only vestige of old Russia after the demolition of Russian socialism was their music. Classical music played all the time in the Soviet Union. Now that the Soviet Union is no longer dominant and uh, the gates are open to the rest of the world, music in Russia is being destroyed by what we're importing or exporting to Russia. Same is true of painting. And we're doing the same thing with painting, yes. <coughs> so we are exporting pandemonium. Yes. Artistic pandemonium. Now, that's evil. Mm -hmm. Well, when you have an evolutionary perspective, you have no way of defining good and evil or drawing a line between them. It's whatever you want to see in it. Yes. It's a Rorschach. Well, it's like, uh, oh, Emile Durkheim in his classic work, The Rules of Sociological Method, in which he defines the criminal as an evolutionary pioneer. So that if what today is called good is tomorrow's evil and today's evil is tomorrow's good, then you destroy all possibility of having an orderly society. 
Well, it's interesting. When I get to that, I hear very few lectures or articles, although they do exist. I just recently got hold of a book by John Gardner, who's dead now, but he wrote a book on He wrote a small book which he titled On Moral Fiction. And I look forward to reading it because I remember it was the only book he wrote that was trashed by the reviewers. The very idea of moral fiction offended them. They thought he'd lost his talent. Well, it's interesting that uh, even Tolstoy, who was not by any means a Christian, he was still a moral writer, and he used a Bible text as uh, the text for his novel, Anna Karenina, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That dimension was very prevalent in the novels of the last century. Well, yes, Dickens, Thackeray, mm -hmm. uh, and here <clears throat> Hawthorne and the rest were... They pondered a great deal over the difference between good and evil. Mm -hmm. I understand that Walker Percy has done the same in our time, but I haven't read his books. I don't know. I've given up on fiction. Well, <clears throat> I think one of the most interesting examples of uh, what we're talking about in the 18th century was Fielding, Henry Fielding. I always enjoyed Fielding, and it is interesting that uh, Tom Jones and before that Joseph Andrews uh, were both good comic works. They were a spoof on uh, some of the naive and uh, priggish good people. They were enjoyable. Uh, they were not uh, unkind, and uh, Fielding himself, for example, wound up uh, liking Parson Adams, whom he presented as a caricature. But before it's over, both you and uh, Fielding like Parson Adams. But what made it impossible for him any longer to write uh, comic spoofs on uh, the good people was that he got an appointment as a judge. And day after day he was face to face with total depravity. And the humor in life was gone for him. He was horrified by what he saw evil to be. Well, uh, Doug said, told me one day that police today suffer greatly at the end of three or four years they can hardly stand it mm -hmm. but we've moved a long way away from an honest society when for instance we cannot discuss the gluttony of some of our big businessmen or their avarice who have scooped up millions upon millions of dollars while they're cutting back the number of people they employ. 
And then on the whole question of the cardinal sins, anger, anger is a cardinal sin. Mm-hmm. And this is what I was referring to when I said the book Fortitude had taught me that uh, I have to watch the business of anger. When you're really in a state of anger, you're practically in a state of madness. You're not rational. So if you allow yourself to get into an irrational state, you do things that you will always remember and regret. And pardon? Go ahead. No. I I see a lot of anger in the faces of women in the. uh, feminist movement, you know, whenever any one of them get on TV, it always strikes me that they have this rage, this countenance of rage, Yes. and that their statements are uh, statements of rage and anger. Well, they've got an argument with God. God shouldn't have made men, and he certainly shouldn't have made men the way they are. And they're going to remake man. That's why they're continually trying to change this. I was thinking of just the same when you were talking about the kids uh, uh, earlier in our conversation uh, between tapings. Uh, It's not just how they dress. It's not just their haircuts. It's the expressions on their face. Yes. They're zombies. They don't smile. There's an evil there that's pervasive over their life. They're, they're, they're headed nowhere you can tell by the look on their face life is a misery to them and it's, ri- it, it, it's as clear as anything they're so unhappy and what makes them so unhappy look at is it the way there's no meaning the to life for them it's, it's what they're taught in school yes yeah. just destroying it and judging by the way they dress they're doing whatever they feel like, which obviously doesn't bring them happiness. No. Our Lord at one point made the statement to the disciples and to the assembled people that there is none good save God alone. God defines the good. God is good and whatever God decrees is good. Therefore, we have to define the good in terms of God and His Word, God's law. Now, that seems obvious to us, but the problem is we live in a culture that has been heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. And for Greek philosophy, the idea of good is not associated with God For them, God was only the first cause, not a person. The good was some abstract idea floating around in space that it was a part of the natural order. Therefore, the more you uh, became in tune with the natural order or natural law, the closer you were to ultimate good. But for us, there is no abstract idea of good floating around in space. Good is what God says it is and none other. And these two ideas are implicitly at war, although most people are unaware of the very, very great difference between the two. 
So you have a great many Christians, churchmen, who are ready to accept the idea of natural law, forgetting that nature is fallen, that there is no inherent good in the natural world that has evolved somehow out of nothingness and constitutes an entity in itself. Well, the list of cardinal sins and cardinal virtues that I wrote down are all involved in actions. And abstractions I find difficult to grasp. Yes. Now, sloth is written down as a cardinal sin, which means a terminal sin, a sin that'll kill you. And what is sloth? Well, somebody who doesn't work. Whatever, somebody who sits beside his vocation, you might say, and goes to sleep. Mm-hmm. Because we all have a vocation. And I think unhappy lives are lives that are based upon avoiding your vocation. I knew uh, a man in a, in a, who had a very high job in a large corporation, and I thought was quite successful when I intervie- interviewed him. He revealed himself to be very unhappy. And uh, I said, why? Why? Well, he said, I really always wanted to be a doctor. And I said, well, why didn't you become a doctor? He said, well, I uh, had to get married. And I had to take a uh, short-term job, and he said this to meet the emergency and so forth. And he said uh, his wife was pregnant, I guess. And he, he did well in the job, and he stayed well with the company, so he spent his entire life, his entire career, doing something he didn't enjoy. And I thought to myself, well, what's the matter with you? Uh, lots of physicians started out without any money. I mean, it was, that was crap. It was, that was sloth. He, he, he simply didn't have any will. And... Because if you follow the vocation that God gave you, you'll succeed. That's the reason he gave you the talent, or the aptitude, or whatever you want to call it. So sin in this context comes in the area of negativity, of, of rejection, of a loss of faith. And... Every one of these are attitudes, you might say, pride, uh, looking down at other people because you might have what somebody called uh, be part of the knowledge monopoly because you know something about some subject that the average person doesn't know. I mean, so there's a thousand subjects that you don't know that uh, somebody else knows. It's almost impossible in this era to be proud of knowledge. I think you raised a very important point. The minute Christianity came on the scene, it defined the cardinal virtues and the cardinal sins. And this was a great revolution. It was a major shift in the attitude of peoples 
Because if you go back to the culture of classical Greece, the word virtue is there, but virtue means strength, power. Manhood. Yes. It's related to the word virile, vir, V-I-R, man, power, strength. So that uh, it had no connotation that we would call moral. You could be a tyrant and you were a man of virtue because you were a man of strength. And Christianity introduced a moral factor and the word virtue was immediately shifted in meaning dramatically. To the avoidance of certain types of behavior. Yes. And in a great many areas, Christianity redefined words in a radical way. Nobody has ever written anything on the redefinition of terminology, but it was quite definite. Words that were common in Latin and in Greek were taken and given a totally different meaning when Christianity began to emerge in the Greco-Roman world. Whoever heard in the ancient world of the idea of liberty? Yes. They had no concept of liberty whatever. None. I don't think they even had a word. Well, they had the semblance of a word, but for them, the free man was the man who was under the state. You are not human if you are outside the state. A stateless man was a non-being. Outlaw. Yes. It was an outlaw. Automatically illegal. So that your only freedom was to be under rule, under authority, totally. A member of the collective. Yes. To use the foreign, to use the modern terminology. So there was no concept of liberty. No. There would be blind rebellion against uh, treason, yes. Yes, against those in power, but it was only to establish their same uh, pattern if they gained power. I think this is where Christian scholars have missed a bet. Yes. Because Christianity is a so invented liberty. Mm-hmm. They came into the world with the Christians. Yes. And yet, here the Christians are accused of being narrow and intolerant, being the opposite, standing for censorship and not for liberty. Well, I was interested some years ago, not too long ago, in reading a book from, oh, I think the 1890s about life in Africa mm-hmm. and how slavery was endemic in African culture and... Uh, a slave would put up with any kind of abuse, torture, mistreatment, because he knew if he were in power, he would do the same thing. And the author cited the case of one man who did gain freedom, then became very powerful, and was as abusive as his master had been to him. Well, I've seen this in life, and so have yes. you. And this was the pattern in the Greco-Roman world. This was the pattern in paganism everywhere. Sure. 
and there was no concept of anything different because virtue to them meant power. Power to lord it over others. We're coming full circle then. Yes, we are. I remember at World War II there was one black merchant marine captain. Got his license in Honolulu. And was given a ship and turned into a regular Captain Bly, a real nut. I mean, he came down like Simon Legree, and at the end of a couple of trips, they had to take him off the vessel. But to cover it up, because this was the New Deal at war, they sent him on a lecture tour, <laughs> recruiting people for the Merchant Marine and talking about uh, the fact that he was the first black Merchant Marine captain in modern times and so forth. But he had obviously thought all his life that if he was a white man, he would really be strong. So he got his four stripes and he was strong. And I have more than once heard somebody uh, years ago, not so much recently, when they point out somebody on top who was doing the wrong thing, I've had them say to me when I was younger, well, so would you if you had that job. And when you say, no, I wouldn't, they don't believe you. Mm-hmm. That's because we're returning to the pagan attitude, to the pagan perspective on virtue. Yeah. And I think it prevails to a great extent unconsciously in Washington, D.C. Well, there's also a rejection of liberty and a desire to have things regulated. Well, I've mentioned this once before, years and years ago. But it is so telling, I'll never forget it to my dying day. Some years ago, oh, in the early to mid-60s, I was part of a panel discussion in uh, Palo Alto and uh, one of the men was uh, the scholar at the Hoover Institution Uh, the other one I don't remember his background he had been in the FBI but I didn't know what he was at the time uh, as I recall it and I was the third and it was before a packed auditorium and I had stressed uh, the necessity of Christian education and a return to a Christian concept of liberty well there was a heated discussion afterwards and there was this one woman who turned out to be a fourth grade school teacher who was at the back and kept waving her hand trying to get attention and uh, came charging up to me when it was over to accuse me of quackery because I had spoken about liberty. Really? And her statement was a remarkable one. She was a highly intelligent woman, a humanist to the core. And her statement was, in the modern world, freedom 
is obsolete. You cannot have a scientifically governed world with anything allowed to operate at random. Therefore, if we're going to have a scientific future, a scientific state, she didn't say scientific socialist, but that was implicit. You must not allow liberty. My goodness, is that what technocracy <coughs> is all about? Yes, apparently. That's what environmentalism is all about. The whole rationale in the environmentalist movement is that man has become too intelligent. Man is now interfering with the evolutionary process by interfering with nature. Therefore, we must totally regulate man so that uh, we can allow evolution to, to be able to continue in the, in the woods. <laughs> I read recently, and I think it was the state of Washington, but I'm not positive, of some game preserve where people are not considered to have any more rights than the animals. There is a growing movement to not only extend the uh, national parks and forests, but to bar people totally from them. Mm -hmm. Then what makes them national? Yes. The latest uh, little Sonora paper just this past week had an article about some biologist from, of course, from some university had stated that uh, the trout that were planted in Sierra waters, a lot of these waters did not have native Trout in them, and they were planted in the 1870s by uh, sportsmen's clubs. Mm -hmm. And he says we've got to now eliminate these trout that have been there for 120 some odd years because they're apparently eating insects. They're illegal immigrants and eating tadpoles of the native frogs, and therefore we must restore the balance by killing the the, the trout. You see the kind of money, I saw a list the other day of the kind of money that the federal government is spending on some of these endangered species, and it's staggering. You know, $11 uh, billion, uh, here and, and $8 billion there. Well, now, they're convinced that they're operating virtuously. They have given virtue a new definition and that is to favor animals over people, insects over people, and so forth. So they're virtuous. Insects don't vote. They don't pay taxes. But, but uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's good. There are certain things I've noticed on um, ballot initiatives. Of course, here in California, we, we vote on all these bonds and initiatives. And the things that always pass are anything for veterans, no matter what it is, if it's got a veteran's name on it, it's going to pass. If it has a park on it, we're going to create a new park, it's going to pass. And if it's got some environmental name on it, it's probably going to pass. People vote for veteran stuff because of guilty conscience, I believe. Sure. Well, this is perhaps irrelevant, but it tickled me all the same. Last week there was... Uh, a former grade school teacher from Angels Camp, currently a resident in Oregon, who was arraigned in Sonora on multiple charges of possession, use, and the like of drugs, and apparently 
uh, introducing children to them. All of these are natural substances. Now this uh, teacher holds positions, or did until reigns, with uh, nature study groups, with the Park Service, National Park Service, and so on. So <laughs> his idea of virtue is totally pagan and anti-Christian, and it's an acceptance of things natural. Is he the fellow who was showing, teaching children about frogs, and he was extracting the milk and frogs, secretions from them? Yes, that's right. I just, I just bust out laughing when they told about that on television. I thought, you know, people will go to any lengths. Really, milking frogs. Milking frogs. <laughs> that reminds me, H.G. Wells said, in his view, the bravest man in the world was the first man to drink cow's milk. This guy's outdone him. He defended himself on this frog milking thing by saying he never damaged a frog. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. That would have been a terrible offense. It's almost a fourth far side cartoon. Somebody yeah, they, extracting yeah. something and giving it to somebody says, "Here, try this." For milking the frogs and drying it, and smoking it, he, he and his wife only got uh, so many hours of going to drug counseling. But now, if he damaged those frogs, he'd gone to prison for a long time. <laughs> so the definitions of good and evil are, are altering. Well, Evil I, is killing the frog. Yeah. Good is milking the frog. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, look at Jack Kerborkian. Jack Kerborkian is taking, trying to take the high moral road. Oh, yeah. He's trying to keep people from suffering. Yes. Jack the Dripper. Well, the doctors have given him an opening because they have reduced people yeah. to agony and let them stay that way. Mm-hmm. They refuse to give painkillers. And the FDA has even issued a directive telling them to issue painkillers, but they won't. They think it's good for you to suffer. Well, wasn't there a time when uh, uh, there were doctors that were prosecuted because some people came up addicted? I don't know of any. Generally speaking, you can't get addicted for... uh, What would you become addicted to? The absence of pain? Well, I was told uh, within the past week of a doctor who uh, really uh, gave a nurse a very strong dressing down because she was uh, unwilling to give the painkillers to a dying person. And he was very blunt and uh, direct about it. Craig told that story. What? Craig told us that story. Yes, Craig Flanagan did. Well, it seemed to me that uh, quite some time ago when the the war on drugs got into high gear that uh, there were some over-eager prosecutors that had gone after some doctors. Yes, the prosecutors decide how much is too much. Yeah, and they got gun-shy ever since. Yes, and and, uh, the whole business is pretty wild, you know. That, uh, I remember that years ago, a friend of mine 
working for Burroughs Welcome and Company dropped a bottle of number four Emperin, which is a heavy narcotic, uh, chemical narcotic. Not, it doesn't provide any euphoria, but it does kill pain. And every every pill that dropped on the floor had to be picked up and counted, and his name put on the broken bottle and all this stuff. There seems to be on the part of our bureaucracy the sort of absence of common sense that we once associated with the Germans of carrying every regulation to insane and lunatic lengths. Well, of course, Machiavelli a long time ago said that was the way to exercise power. Which it is. You could gain great power over people more important than yourself by reducing everything to nonsense and compelling people to meet every jot and tittle of the regulation. This is where we are. Yes. And that's an evil, mm-hmm. that's an evil system. Yes. In times to come, our bureaucrats will discover the fruits of that. Because all bad things come to an end, the same as all good things. Well, I don't think good things will come to an end. Uh, They'll triumph and reign forever in heaven, and the evil, well, they'll wind up in hell. Well, we go through stages. You know, it's summer for a while, and it's winter. Well, our time is uh, nearing an end. Would you like to make any summary statements, Douglas? Well, uh, drawing from my own personal experience, uh, if we're going to perpetuate good in this life, then we're going to have to teach our young people what good is so that they can tell the difference because the majority of kids in high school today haven't got a clue. And it shows in their faces and the way they act and the kind of people they become. So there is only one window of opportunity for people and that's to put their kids through a Christian school. Otherwise the next generation is going to be just as lost as the present generation is. That brings uh, up an important point because I've heard people say that well, our public school isn't so bad. This teacher isn't so bad. They actually encourage the Christian students to present their point of view. But what they what they do in these discussion groups is every view is valid, and so we must express all our views and come to a consensus. There is no absolute truth. Therefore, we have to come to a consensus or an appreciation of everybody else's idea. But just the fact that they welcome the Christian kids to give their their views does not mean that Christianity is welcome or an important part um, of that discussion. It's, it's just thrown into the melting pot. They dilute the authority that Christian teaching should have by marginalizing it in the larger group. That's the reason the government has accepted all of these other religions. Uh, we'll be tolerant of you 
as a Christian, mm-hmm. you be tolerant of this person and that person. As long as you don't stand up for your faith, you're okay. Right. right. Mm-hmm. We've returned to the attitude of the Roman Empire. Rome believed in the exclusive power of Rome. It regulated every aspect of life. It did not believe that there was an exclusive truth. Therefore, it wanted to recognize every kind of religion and make them legitimate, provided none of them had an exclusive position. And, of course, Christianity was totally against this. So was Judaism. Yes. But they finally dealt with Judaism by trying to destroy it forever. They placed an extra tax on the Jews. Yes. However, uh, Rome was exclusive where its power was concerned, just as the modern state wants to attack the exclusiveness of Christianity, but insist on the exclusiveness of the power of the state. Well, it has placed itself above all the churches. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the reason that the churches have lost most of their prestige. Mm -hmm. Their ancient power, ancient Christian power to limit the state has been lost in this particular state. Yes. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.